Friends, welcome to Young and Sanctified. I'm Justin. Our goal is to provide open access to expert insights that will deepen your understanding of faith and the world around you. I'm excited to have you join us today as we dive into the world of evangelicalism, and specifically evangelical Christology. Our guest today is Dr. John Stackhouse, a renowned scholar and author who has spent his career studying the history and beliefs of evangelical theology and Christians. I'm excited for you to hear his insights and expertise on evangelicalism and specifically evangelical Christology. Throughout our conversation, we'll be exploring some key themes and questions that are at the heart of evangelical Christology and evangelicalism. So whether you're a curious seeker or a committed believer, this podcast is for you. We're here to help you explore the big questions and ideas that matter most and to engage with them thoughtfully and meaningfully. And hey, if you enjoy this podcast, please support it. Not financially, I'm not asking for that. All all I'm saying is I want to hear from you. Leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share with a friend who might enjoy this content. Together, we can build a community of young or not so young, sanctified listeners, passionate about learning and growing in faith. That's, That's the whole point. Let's spread the word. Make it open access for all. All right, Dr. Stackhouse, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. So you wrote this interesting uh, article, chapter on Jesus Christ and evangelical theology. So before we dive into the nitty gritty of what makes up evangelical Christology, can you talk about what the word evangelical means? (laughs) Well, yes, I can. In fact, uh, my friends say I wrote the book on what evangelical means because, uh, uh, as you may know, this past year, I wrote the very short introduction in the Oxford University Press series of such introductions on evangelicalism. So I'm supposed to know what it means. Oxford thinks I know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, the way I define evangelical uh, is, in this sense, is what I would call simply the the vital observant center of Protestant Christianity. I think there are counterparts in Catholic and Orthodox Christianity. Uh, They'll have to come up with their own uh, names. But what I mean is the kind of Protestantism that is located between a conservative mode where we know what the truth is, we know what the right way to do things is, so we just keep doing it, and we freeze it and thaw it out in every generation, so we just keep doing the same thing because we know what's right. And the liberal form of Christianity, uh, which would be free, liber, from liberty, uh, we're free to accept or reject whatever we inherit from the Christian tradition, uh, apply what we want to, depending on what we think is the, the best wisdom of our day, and uh, pursue whatever agenda we think we should. Evangelicals are between that. Evangelicals take the Bible seriously as the Word of God. Uh, We are Trinitarian Christians. We're generally Orthodox in our beliefs. Um, We recognize each other as kin, so that as a Presbyterian, I can recognize an Anglican. As an Anglican, I can recognize a Baptist. As a Baptist, I can recognize a Mennonite or a Pentecostal as uh, similarly devoted to Jesus and the Word of God and the mission of the Church. And so evangelicals typically cooperate with each other. Um, 
with, uh, you know, in, in missions, in seminaries, in other kinds of uh, joint work. So evangelicals really don't see themselves as a particular kind of Protestant. They see themselves as trying to be good Protestants, trying to be good Christians. And when evangelicals write books about evangelical belief, they tend to call it things like basic Christianity, in the words of John Stott's famous book from a generation ago. Uh, you know, the, the idea of latching on to, to C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity, a lot of evangelicals aren't too sure about those Catholics or Orthodox, but they know uh, what, what they think they mean by that. So it, to, to, to sum it up, when I talk about evangelical in this sense, um, I do mean this tradition of Christianity that uh, really arises in the 18th century out of both Puritanism in England and Pietism on the European continent as a movement that is interested in both renewal of the church and reformation of society. Renewal was really the pietist main concern. Uh, reformation of society, really the Puritan concern. Evangelicals are concerned to, to submit all of life uh, to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to follow him with as much integrity and enthusiasm as we can. Now, there's other descriptions about the movement that we could get into, but I think when it comes to theology, which is our conversation today, what I mean by evangelical really just means the mainstream of faithful, uh, orthodox, Protestant thought. But particularly, I wanted to say that um, those who self-identify as evangelicals need not be embarrassed about our heritage in its caricature. Um, I mean, the caricature is embarrassing, but that's not the reality. The caricature is that we're a bunch of uh, loud-mouthed activist busybodies who are trying to get everything done yesterday, and we'll use whatever means possible to build our churches and advance our uh, empires and so on. And that's a, a caricature of genuine evangelical entrepreneurship. But when it comes to theology, a lot of evangelicals are nervous about evangelicalism, and they say, well, we, know, we, we need to go to other smarter traditions. We need to look at Karl Barth, or we need to look at the Catholics, so we need to look at other folks. Uh, they're the really serious thinkers. And I would suggest that with all due respect to Christian thinkers of other sorts, there's a lot in our evangelical heritage that needs to be properly understood and appropriated and uh, treasured in our own day. Mm. Mm. Can you share briefly what those things are that you think should be treasured and understood? Well, I do think that evangelicals are unabashedly traditional when it comes to our core beliefs. <laughs> Evangelicalism uh, is, as I say, entrepreneurial, quite pragmatic, willing to do whatever it needs doing to win men and women to Jesus Christ to enfold them in the church. Evangelicals mm. have been, in that sense, technologically, even broadly, even more broadly speaking, methodologically quite innovative. You know, if radio's going to mm -hmm. work, let's use radio. TV's going to work, let's use TV. But when it comes to the content put out, mm -hmm. um, we have, as a group, focused on uh, a Trinitarian understanding of God, a pretty full-orbed understanding of what Jesus is doing in his incarnation, in his suffering, his death, his resurrection. Mm -hmm. We've sometimes been a little 
soft on emphasizing all that Jesus did during his earthly teaching career. Sometimes we've been a little soft on understanding what it means for him to be ascended. But Hmm. frankly, when I hear people, usually evangelicals themselves, criticizing evangelicalism for not saying enough about Jesus' kingdom work or not saying enough about the lordship of Christ as the ascended Lord, I can always think of evangelical thinkers who championed those views, and it's just that certain evangelical traditions have trouble keeping everything in proper balance. And then I'd say, well, welcome to the human condition. I mean, everybody has trouble keeping everything in balance, so we help each other. But in the evangelical tradition, properly uh, understood, I think there are rich theological resources that come out of our traditional emphases on the work of Jesus Christ, on the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, both of those. Um, I think on the importance, in fact, the, the central importance of conversion, both the coming into the kingdom of Christ and the growing up in that kingdom into maturity. Evangelicals have meant both things by conversion, being soundly converted and growing up into full sanctification. I think that evangelicals have been uh, strongly influenced by the biblical emphasis on Jesus as Lord, Lord of the church and Lord of the whole world, and the returning Lord who will bring everything under uh, his feet. Um, I think evangelicals have been uh, theologically concerned to treat the Bible as truly the voice of God, however mediated by human authors, editors, communities, and so on, uh, still to be understood as it say, existentially the Word of God, not simply a book that was divinely inspired in its various forms in the past. And evangelicals have argued with each other about whether the autographs are inspired or whether the canonical version is inspired. But we treat the Bibles that we have as truly the Word of God through which the Holy Spirit speaks today. And we measure each other's theology by its consonance with the biblical text, at least we should. And I think that evangelical theology stops being evangelical theology when it loses these kinds of emphases and starts yeah. to emphasize something else. Hmm. Why do you think there's like a pushback within evangelicalism on itself? Why do you think there's that tension happening? A lot of us evangelicals, and I'm going to resort to a kind of historical, sociological explanation here. A lot of us evangelicals mm-hmm. who go on to theology school and who then get to have the microphones and the books and so on to to express ourselves, at least up to the last generation. Uh, in other words, the people who get to speak for evangelicals, the educated, uh, privileged folk, usually in the first world, who get to do that. A lot of us come from churches that we're kind of embarrassed about. A lot of us come from families that we're a little bit ashamed of. Um, Mom and dad weren't that literate. Our churches were small and a little bit stupid. They, they didn't appreciate the life of the mind. They, they, they didn't cultivate a love of books and of discussion. Mm. Uh, a lot of us were chastised for being difficult in study school or at summer camp because we asked the awkward questions. And I'm afraid from those experiences, all of which I had myself, um, Mm-hmm. We can sometimes overgeneralize to suggest that evangelicalism is stupid. Um, because my experience as an evangelical intellectual in the making 
has been in some ways disappointing. And I would have mm. to say as a church historian, I got news for you. You grew up in a Catholic church, you're going to have the same experience too. You grew up in an Orthodox mm. church, you're going to have the same experience. Like there is no, no wonderful tribe of thoughtful, wise, sophisticated, cosmopolitan church people out there um, mm. that you just happen to miss because you're an evangelical. So that's the first thing is, is, is that people are making um, false comparisons between, say, the wisdom of a C.S. Lewis or the, 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 the power of, of a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and they're comparing yeah. those giants with the ordinary folk in their local church or in their Bible school or even in their seminary. Well, everybody looks pretty bad compared to C.S. Lewis or Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, that's not an evangelical yeah. problem. That's just the problem of ordinary people versus geniuses. So there's there's mm. a kind of a weird uh, comparing of of apples and oranges here that I think makes evangelicals more unhappy with themselves than they should. I went to graduate school with Lutherans who felt the same way about the Lutheran tradition, and and with Catholics who felt that Catholics were generally stupid too. Um, so so part of this I think is just confusing the human condition with what we happen to have experienced within our own particular tribe. I think secondly mm. is that. Evangelical theology has, in many respects, been fighting a rear guard action for about 150 years. Um, I think that the, the the orthodox stream of Christian thought has been under such stress, um, at least since the time of Kant and Schleiermacher, if not before that, that there's been a lot of effort expended just trying to man the battlements, you know, just trying to keep things from being blown up by, you know, mm -hmm. uh, unfriendly higher criticism of the Bible, for instance, or uh, this kind of undermining of the importance of orthodoxy by the Schleiermacherian school of thought, which mm. is liberal theology in all of its various expressions, by a post-Kantian skepticism. Uh, about uh, revelation and about uh, the the prospect of God making himself fully known. So there's been, understandably, I think, a lot of evangelical theological work that's come into just trying to retain the tradition. Um, and with that understandable agenda of protecting the faith once delivered to the saints— has unfortunately come a kind of defensiveness that means we can be hyper-vigilant about innovation. And innovation becomes suspect in and of itself. Um, and this is a, uh, a really thin soil on which to try to grow mm. creative theology. So what's mm. happened, I think, over the last several generations is that the most interesting evangelical thought about the faith has come from English departments and poets and songwriters and mm -hmm. philosophers and to some extent sociologists, but very little from systematic theology itself, I would say until the last mm -hmm. generation, particularly buoyed by philosophers so that we have the analytic theology movement, which borrows quite heavily from you know, the, the Walter Storfs and Plantigas and others of a, of a previous generation. Hmm. Um, because the, the worry is that if you're going to try to do theology in a fresh way, you're going to say wrong things. And mm -hmm. since that is a very real 
clear and present danger, the atmosphere at Christian colleges and universities and seminaries, especially around theology, is, as they say, pretty hypervigilant so that it's in the um, related disciplines that innovation um, can be tolerated and, um, and gotten mm. away with. Uh, in a in a way that's not so clear when somebody publishes their systematic theology and now everybody wants to check it out to make sure it's okay. Um, so mm. I think I think in that sense, Mark Knowles pointed to the fact that that British evangelicalism has largely been led intellectually by the relatively few scholars who were able to secure secondary university posts, and in those posts they're virtually untouchable. Whereas in Canada and even more in the United States, uh, I think uh, evangelicalism has been led by people who've gotten their posts in evangelical institutions, and they're constantly vulnerable. Um, and, mm. and, and they're not paranoid. Uh, they really are. Uh, tenure will not protect you if the board really wants you gone. And that has cast a pall over, I think, theological freshness uh, for over 100 years. Going back to your first point, my own tradition, the Salvation Army, I've definitely felt that um, there's not, you know, we're not the smartest denomination out there. So I, I, I hear you, but it's, it's refreshing to, to know that I'm not the only one that thinks about this, like this, about my, my church. Um, and you, you're, you reminded me of a book, uh, I forget who wrote it, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. That's Mark Knoll. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And Mark is in that book and in a couple of others of his on the evangelicals in the Bible, is very helpful in looking at the historical sociology of where evangelical thinking is done on behalf of the community. And and the Salvation Army is a really good uh, case in point, actually. I, I have great respect for the Salvation Army, and I think, frankly, most people do because of the charitable work that the Salvation Army does. Yeah. I think they're one of the most important apologetic features that the church can offer in North America and around the world today. Yeah. But be precisely because of its DNA being formed in, you know, frontline slum working London uh, urban populations and the, I think, quite understandable suspicion that when you start becoming intellectually sophisticated, you start moving uptown and you lose your missionary heart, you lose touch with the poor. And you basically lose also um, what the Booths would say, you lose your holiness. Uh, That's what happened to Methodism. It's not going to happen to us. And again, uh, I I think that that's that's wrong, but it's not crazy wrong. When I say that, I say it's wrong in the sense that there's there's no obvious reason why somebody can't be a keen um, carer for the poor Mm -hmm. and be intellectually and theologically sharp. I think, for instance, of several uh, Latin American evangelicals, Rene Padilla, uh, Samuel Escobar, uh, uh, Orlando Costas of a previous generation who are clearly happy to work with the poor of Latin America and are also doing really good evangelical theology on the front lines. One can do that. It's hard, but one can do that. Um, But I also understand that in the nature of the case, theology is a kind of disciplined leisure enterprise. Mm-hmm. To do it well, you have to have long stretches of quiet. You have to have long stretches 
of comfort where you can sit and work hard, yes, but you're thinking quietly, you're securely able to follow things out. Um, and, and that's hard to understand in a tradition where there are people dying of alcoholism and malnutrition yeah. and, and child abuse all around you. Um, right. So no wonder uh, the salvation salvationist tradition isn't long on intellectual reflection. What I think what we could do, and I, and I really hope we'll do this better in the next generation than we've done in the past, is to learn from each other and, and that, that salvationism, which is, which is doing in some of its schools, like Catherine Booth College up here in Canada in Winnipeg, mm -hmm. to try to generate a, a new generation of thoughtful salvationists who don't lose their zeal and don't lose their edge and their compassion and just become smarter versions of that while they inspire the rest of us to get out of the study every once in a while and actually care for people. I mean, this, this is what evangelical ecumenicity should look like. insight the moment individuals get smarter they tend to stop caring for the poor that's fast or like intellectually sharper is what you said that's that's fascinating so with our remaining time can we uh move into christology a little bit sure so in in your chapter that i read you mentioned a few key insights or key, uh, key ideas regarding christology and that's pre-existence incarnation recapitulation inauguration crucifixion resurrection and ascension as much as we can, I know that we're we're running short on time. Um, can can you talk about this? Like maybe you know uh, a brief summary uh -huh. of each, real quick. Like why this is important for evangelical Christology. Well, you'll notice that the way I decided to organize that chapter wasn't in terms of theological abstractions, mm -hmm. although it sounds kind of abstract when you rattle off the titles like that. And those are my titles, so I'll take the blame for that. <laughs> uh, blame there be. Um, but in narrative form, right. I think that uh, Christology makes the most sense to encounter through the encounter with the Christ event, through the actual life of Jesus. So I've arranged this chapter in this Oxford handbook um, in terms of literally the, the history of Jesus, his preexistence mm -hmm. as the Son of God. You know, Before he was Jesus, he was the eternal Son of God. And then his incarnation as Jesus, when he's given his name Jesus, um, what that means uh, for God to become human, why God does that, and, and how that happens so far as we know, uh, what it means for Jesus to grow up. Uh, I think a lot of us, because the Gospels give us very little information about Jesus between birth and maturity, aside from that you know, one lovely story of him in the temple, mm -hmm. we, we too quickly pass over the gospel affirmation that Jesus grew in stature and in wisdom, hmm. um, that he actually matured. He was a real baby, knowing what a real baby knows. And a lot of us haven't quite figured out how does Jesus be divine and yet not know more than a baby. And this, of course, is a puzzle that goes right back to the early church. So it's hmm. not like they all knew what we don't. No, none of us quite understand that mystery. But I, I really do think that in this case, 
the so-called canotic Christology, the Christology that takes Jesus' self-emptying seriously. Kenosis is a word coming from the, the Greek for Philippians 2, where Jesus empties himself. I think, I think the only way, uh, not, not the only way, I think the best way to make sense of what we see in Scripture of Jesus is that, in a way we can't possibly understand, the mm-hmm. Son of God truly enters into, voluntarily, an experience of dependence on the Father through the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. so that he is perfect, he's certainly sinless, but that he is also um, dependent in a way that is a model for us, um, and that's how he's Son of Man, as well as Son of God. And if we're not careful, uh, we can end up as evangelicals with a Jesus that's truly the Son of God, and we're so worried about Jesus being demoted from Son of God to merely a human person, hmm. a la Schleimacher and so on, that we can overdo the Son of God part. We end up with a descetic Christology where Jesus right. is certainly divine, but he only appears to be human. He's truly human. I mean, he has to have some, some analogous experience, at least, to human dependence, or he really can't be our high priest. I mean, if he's tempted in every way as we are, and whenever he encounters a temptation, he just, to borrow a phrase from another scholar, he just turns on his divine power pack Mm. and goes, dun-da-dum, you know, no temptation shall touch me. Well, then he's not really tempted in any way like I am. I'm I'm constantly feeling embattled and and I might sin. Even if I'm not going to sin, I don't know that I'm not going to sin. And and it's possible. So, again, I I don't think that Jesus can sin because of his sinless character and because mm-hmm. of his dependence on, on the Father. But I think his experience of temptation is very strong. In fact, it's stronger because he gets tempted to the nth. Right. I mean, I cave in after one or two mild temptations from Satan. He doesn't have to throw much at me, just a candy bar or a picture <laughs> of a cute girl. Like, that's all it takes for me to fall. Jesus mm-hmm. He has to offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. That's mm. what he has to do to try to rock Jesus. Interesting. And, and even then, Jesus doesn't fall. So he really does know um, what it's like to depend on God through the Holy Spirit, and thus is, I think, our model for mm. discipleship, paradoxically, even as he is our uh, object of worship. So we talk about that a little bit. Um, and then, of course, uh, I want to emphasize Jesus inaugurating the kingdom and to remind ourselves particularly as a white Canadian male, of themes that my black American friends and my Latin American evangelical friends know very well, and that is the liberation themes Mm. of the inauguration of the kingdom in Jesus' earthly ministry. And I'm so grateful for those social gospel liberationist themes that can make evangelicals nervous, but that's only because in some of those traditions, they emphasize those things and fail to emphasize other things. Well, we'll keep emphasizing Jesus' divinity and his atonement and all those good things. But we also want to remember from them these important messages of liberation and an alternative way of life Mm. and the eventual downfall of the illegitimate powers and the raising up of the inappropriately uh, devalued, as in Mary's Magnificat. Mm -hmm. Then I want to talk about Jesus' suffering for our sins. I think that we talk about the death of Christ pretty readily as evangelicals, but the Gospels actually spend almost no verses at all on Jesus' actual death. They spend chapters on Jesus' suffering. I think it's very important, actually. I think it's quite suggestive also for how Jesus truly substitutes for us. 
And, and I'm very much a proponent of substitutionary atonement. I just don't think how you can read the Old Testament, let alone the New Testament, without having a strong sense of substitutionary atonement. Um, whether it's the penal version or some other, it doesn't really matter to me because mm-hmm. all of these are ways of getting at the fact that what was due us is suffered for us by Jesus, mm-hmm. such that we don't have to suffer it. And so I think it's important to do what the Gospels do, which is to, to, to dwell on the fact that Jesus suffers for us. He undergoes the pain that our sins deserve. And then when he's finished paying for it, he says it's finished and he dies. And that's why I think that uh, when it comes to the doctrine of hell, uh, there is an end to the experience of suffering for the doomed. Uh, I'm not a universalist. I don't think there's enough biblical warrant to defend universalism, sure. uh, hopeful as it is. But I also don't think there's any reason to think that people writhe in agony forever and ever and ever, because Jesus didn't either. Hmm. Um, Jesus suffered, and then he died, and then it was paid in full. Hmm. Um, and if you don't get Jesus to do it for you, then you do that yourself, and you will suffer until you finally die, hmm. and you'll have paid your debt in full, and then you're done. And if God hasn't raised Jesus from the dead, he would have been done, so hmm. to speak. Um, now, again, we're did really, really deep waters here, um, because there's also a sense in which Jesus raises himself, right? He says, oh, sure. no man takes my life from me, and I, I lay it down, I take it up again. But there's a sense in, as our substitute, Jesus is truly dead, hmm. and that God, as Peter says in Acts 2, raises this Jesus from the dead and makes him both Lord and Messiah, or really actually justifies him and and uh, vindicates him hmm. as Lord and a Messiah for us. And then I want to go on and talk about what Jesus is doing now, having been raised from the dead. Sometimes evangelicals, among others, can, can sound like Jesus is having a sabbatical. You know, he's, he, he's having a hard-earned rest after his long 33 years, and now the Holy Spirit's doing all the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a helpful way to put it, because the Bible says Jesus is doing two really important things. One, I think, literally, the other symbolically. I think literally Jesus is ruling the church and ruling the world, and ruling the world partly through the ministry of the church. Hmm. And then Jesus is also symbolically representing the heart of God, as as if he is the priest talking to God the Father and having to remind his forgetful father that he has suffered and died on the cross so that God doesn't need to pound us for our ongoing sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I do, do think that's metaphorical language, that wonderful language in Hebrews of Jesus' high priestly ministry. I really don't think the Father forgets, you know, or needs to be reminded, you know, Jesus has to say, now, Dad, remember what I did, so, right. you know, don't pound those people. Uh, oh, yes, right, son, sorry, forgot, I'll put my thunderbolt down. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's what's happening. Um, but I think it's a lovely, lovely metaphor for how... Um, identification with us and sympathy for us is right there in the heart of God. It's right there in the Trinity, in the person of Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus will come again, and literally so. He's going to come again. It's going to be the news event of ever, and he's going to bring in what? Well, he's going to bring in Earth Hmm. 2.0. He's going to do what Revelation 21 and 22 says. He's going to come down and bring the new city with him, the new Jerusalem, hmm. and set up on this renewed planet uh, a, a forever and ever with us as we continue the work of reigning over this world and this cosmos 
as benevolent lords, as he set us up to do in Genesis 1 and 2. So there's a quick sketch, yeah. and that's what we try to cover uh, in that chapter. Right. So your last point, I find what you just said really interesting, because I've interviewed a, a dozen people or so, so far, regarding the topic of Christology, whether it's biblical, systematic. You're the first person to mention the second coming, interestingly. Is that is that a distinct part of evangelical theology, do you think? Well, it should be, should it? Um, there's <laughs> yeah. a fair bit of the Bible devoted to it. I mean, right. the, the Gospels have Jesus saying he's coming again. Um, the Old Testament predicts a, a, a messianic kingdom. I mean, the what, the what the Old Testament expects is not what we see in the Gospels. What the Old Testament expects is what we see in Revelation. Let's be clear about that. So there's actually testimony in, in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, in the epistolary literature, and in the Revelation, that Jesus is jolly well coming back, just as you've seen him go. He is coming again, and as the Creed said, to judge the living and the dead. Um, he's sorting things out. So for Christians to have a Christology without the second coming is, is like to have a long novel with no conclusion. Um, and, and, and I, I think that your observation is really interesting and, and kind of, um, unnerving, uh, because that's the point. I mean, the point of all of this, of, of the whole Bible, the point of all of this is for God to dwell with his creatures in shalom in this lovely global flourishing that we see in the last couple of chapters of the Bible. You don't talk about that then all we've got is what we have now. And boy, that's that's pretty discouraging. Uh, make, uh, it makes me wonder if only people who have pretty nice positions in this world can talk about Christology without talking about the second coming. I, I don't think anybody who is living under oppression, which is most Christians in most eras, would ever talk about Christology without talking about the second coming. Well, I'm just curious how evangelical faith is different. Um, like, how does it look different compared to, you know, the Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox uh, in regards to Christology? Um, for instance, like the piety kind of life. What, what, what does that look like? Yeah, it does. I think that what our Catholic and our Orthodox friends share that's different from the lived experience of most evangelicals is a strong sense of the sacramental life of the church. Hmm. I think that those traditions are um, emphasized in their corporate worship and in their sense of what it means to lead the normal Christian life, a stronger sense that the, the Christian needs to keep interacting with the local congregation and the local clergy hmm. to receive from God blessings that they probably wouldn't get any other way. So these means of grace— Frequent communion, um, confession, and absolution, those in particular, um, this needs to be a regular part of the Christian life. Hmm. And in that sense, um, our Catholic and Orthodox friends would be echoed by Martin Luther and by John Calvin, uh, who are known as evangelical heroes, who also wanted at least weekly communion in the churches. Um, Calvin didn't get his way in Geneva. He wanted weekly communion. Uh, Luther wants it too. Hmm. Um, they both believed in auricular confession. 
their only difference with the Catholic Church is that they felt as the priesthood of all believers, you didn't have to do it to a clergyman, but you should do it to somebody. They didn't believe that you should just confess your sins in your own private study to God. You really should confess them to somebody else, mm. and that other friendly Christian could pronounce the gospel to you, and that's would be this would be what God wanted. He wanted a human representation to really drive home the point that God really loves you and he really has forgiven you. Yeah. Hmm. So I think our our friends in those traditions, our brothers and sisters, indeed, in those traditions, um, remind us of something of the um, the sacramental, the physical, the the connective idea of God. One of the paradoxes is that this connection with the church that the Catholics and Orthodox emphasize is rarely borne out in congregational life. And this is something I haven't quite figured out, but my friends who are Catholics and Orthodox will say, we're really big on coming to church, receiving communion, confession, and so on. But then we kind of come and go, almost as if we come in individually, get our what we need, and then we leave. You evangelicals hang around for coffee and donuts, and you have small groups, Mm. and you get to know each other. And we have very little body life here unless you're really part of an intentional community of some Mm -hmm. kind. So there's an interesting paradox there in which we, I think, can help some of them with congregational life, and they can help us perhaps with sacramental life as well. Mm. Now, when it comes to Christology, then, I think part of what they help us see is that God likes to work through media. He he doesn't do very many things directly. Mm. He speaks to us through the Bible and the Spirit. He consoles us through fellow Christians. Mm -hmm. He feeds us spiritually through bread and wine. Um, God likes to work through intermediaries. He likes to get us working with each other kind of thing, rather than just directly zapping us. And in every form of Christianity, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, it's tricky to hold that together, um, Mm. to, to keep remembering how God likes to work through media and through mediators. Um, in a way that doesn't end up idolizing the mediators, hmm. whether it's a priest or it's a television preacher, um, but at the same time doesn't let us comfortably retreat from corporate life into my own little relationship with Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, by which we can sometimes mean my private client-patron relationship, where I don't really have to mess with those un comfortable, awkward people in the local church. Mm. No, that's not an option. You've got to go to church. You've got to go to a local church. You've got to participate in a church. That's the New Testament pattern. Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, we've got to be church people. And when it comes to Christology, Jesus says, look, this is my body, not mm. you on your own. You know, you're an ear. You're an eye. You're only part of the body when you're part of a body. Mm. And that, I think, is probably something that uh, some of us who find the local church disappointing uh, need to keep hearing. There is no ideal local church. The only local, the only church there is, is the local church. So you better try to find a way to make it work. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Stackhouse, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and your work and just your ministry and witness. And I appreciate your time. Great to talk to you. Thanks.